sing together, church. You guys can go ahead and make your way back to your seats. Um, as Miss Tracy mentioned a moment ago, I am not Pastor Ravi. My name is Adam Butler, and uh, but I'm very grateful for Pastor Ravi for giving me the opportunity to come and preach to you this morning. And it's, it's really good to be back here again this morning. And the reason I say back here again is because those of you that were here a little over a year ago might remember that I also had the opportunity to preach here. Um, it was around July of last year. And if you were here during that service, you might also remember that I had mentioned at the beginning of the service, or the beginning of the message rather, that the night prior I had just gotten engaged to a beautiful woman named Sydney. Now, if you're wondering how all of that played out, just to let you know, we did end up getting married, by the way. And so, thank you. We have actually been married for exactly three months today. So we got married on September 18th, just a few months ago. And uh, she's just the most amazing woman uh, I've ever met. And marriage has been beautiful so far. And uh, God has blessed us in more ways than we can imagine. And I'm also excited to say that we already have a third member of our family, actually. And I believe I've got a picture of our trio up there. That's him. See, y'all thought I was talking about a child, but we're, we're not quite ready for that yet. But this is, this is Tucker, and that's me and Sydney up there. And uh, that's our little family right there. He's a, a golden doodle and a handful. And uh, so but we just, we, we love life. We're actually living in Aiken, South Carolina. We're actively involved with our church family there. And uh, as I mentioned before, it's just been amazing, and God has just been so good to us. And but as I said already, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity for Pastor Robbie to give me to come speak to you this morning. And from what I understand, you've been in a series, I believe it's called Simply Christmas, but essentially over the past few weeks, we've been in this Advent season and you guys have been taking some time to kind of look over the Christmas narrative, the Christmas story that for some of us is extremely familiar, but maybe there's some aspects to it that some of us tend to kind of overlook. And so as we've been going through this series, We've been taking a uh, sharper, sharper look into the Christmas story. But before I get there, I'd like to share briefly just a little bit about myself for those of you that don't know me, and not to draw any attention to me, but I think that the concept of testimonies is actually pertinent to the story that we're going to be looking at this morning. As I mentioned, my name is Adam. I was born and raised here in, South Car or in Monk's Corner, and I actually lived here for 24 years of my life up until just a few months ago when Sydney and I got married, I moved up to Aiken. So I'm very familiar with this area. I graduated just down the road there at Berkeley High School. And um, my parents raised me, my brother Andrew, who actually teaches at this school, by the way, and our sister Sarah Lynn, and they raised us as godly parents should. And I like to brag on mom and dad anytime I'm given the opportunity to preach. And the reason is because I believe beyond reasonable doubt that the reason why I am saved, the reason why I have chosen to follow Christ is because they discipled us the way that godly parents should. And what I mean by that is they taught us how to read our Bibles. They taught us how to pray. They taught us how to keep the spiritual disciplines therein. And as a result, they discipled me, and it led me to ultimately make the decision to follow Christ. I became a Christian around the fifth grade. I don't remember the exact time because I didn't fully understand it until a little bit later in life. But for as long as I can remember, I've essentially believed in God and have since centered my life around the belief that Jesus is the only way to heaven. In fact, I can't remember what it was like not to believe that. And I've examined the evidence, and I've studied God's word, and I've come to the conclusion that this is the truth, that God's word is true, and every other worldview fails in comparison 
to the truth of Christianity. And that's it. That's my testimony. Now, I used to tell people that I have a boring testimony. I mean, I, you know, a kid was homeschooled, bo- uh, raised in a Christian home, went to church all his life, has been a Christian basically all his life, and, you know, nothing really exciting. That's, that's just my testimony. It's not that cool. And I would hear people with testimonies that were just amazing. You know, you hear people who have come out of addiction or who have attempted suicide and only to be reconciled to God or who were in prison for years and then God is just using them for the kingdom. And I'd hear those testimonies and I'd say, man, I've got nothing on that. That is a cool testimony. My testimony is nothing really that special. But the more that I thought about that, what an arrogant thing to claim. To suggest that somehow the God of the universe stepping into human history to save a wretched sinner like me who deserved his wrath, who deserved eternity separated from him, who deserved the penalty for my own sin, but God loved me so much that he would save somebody like me to suggest that that is somehow not a special testimony? So needless to say, I don't tell people that anymore, that my testimony is not special, because testimonies are powerful things. But even so, I don't share my testimony very often. And the reason is, is because my testimony does not matter. What matters is, is it true? And here's what I mean by that. My personal testimony, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. What matters is, is the worldview to which I claim, does that bear witness to the truth of reality? If Jesus of Nazareth really did die on a cross and really did rise from the grave after three days, if that one event is true, then my faith is grounded in that reasoning. But my testimony by itself doesn't matter. What matters is, is Christianity actually true? And this morning, I think we're going to find that we've got an interesting testimony to look at, some minor characters in this Christmas story. But what we'll see this morning is that God uses testimonies not for our glory, but for his glory. And so we're going to look at the testimony of some, as I said, some minor characters who actually play an important role in the story of Jesus. So, as I mentioned a moment ago, you guys have been in this series going through the Christmas story, and it's important to focus in on these details that we tend to overlook, because for many of us, we get caught up in the Christmas season, and we kind of forget what the true message of Christmas really is. See, because Christmas really is a season here in America, is it not? I mean, it used to be confined to about a month, the month of December, but now it's like three or four, depending on how you play the game. I mean, Christmas is not just a holiday, it's a whole season, and I used to be the guy who couldn't stand to put a Christmas tree up prior to Thanksgiving. I was the guy who couldn't stand to to drive through a neighborhood and see Christmas trees in the windows if it was before Thanksgiving. I was a hater. I was like, you can't, you're skipping over one of the most important holidays of the year. You can't put your Christmas tree up that early. It's it's blasphemy. It's got to be somewhere in the Bible. And I was that guy. But my wife is the complete opposite. If she had it her way, we probably would have had our tree up the day after Halloween. She, loved, she wanted to put it, and so we compromised, and our Christmas tree was up, I think, like a few days after Halloween. But here's the thing, and if I'm being completely honest, I love it. See, now that I'm that guy that we've had our tree up for well over a month now, now I love it. And now that I'm on the opposite side of that token, I'll see the posts on Facebook from people who hate guys like me who have our trees up early you know, just like slandering us. And now I'm on the other side. So I'm thinking, what do you care? It's not your tree. Nobody's telling you to put your tree up early. 
just let me enjoy the Christmas season a little bit longer. Scrooge. But, but for many of us, but see, that's, that's what Christmas is, is, is all of that. It's, it's the festivities and the, the lights and the music and, and the, well, I almost said snow, but if you live south of North Carolina, then there's no such thing as snow. And when we do get a threat of snow once a decade, it, all we just do is get scared and go buy all the bread. But what Christmas really is, is so much deeper than all of that. All of that stuff is, is beautiful, but it's so much deeper. And if we're honest with ourselves, Christmas really has nothing to do with any of that at all. What Christmas really is, is a celebration of the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, was born among humanity. The, that's the essence of why we're celebrating what we're celebrating this year, or at least it should be. That this word we sung about it a moment ago, Emmanuel, according to Scripture, literally means God with us. God incarnate in the flesh as a living, breathing human being, just like you and me, with the added bonus of being God. And with that added bonus comes the fact that he was sinless. So God never, Jesus never sinned. He could not sin or else he would cease to be God because God, by definition, is without sin. He's without error. So Jesus is God in the flesh. God is manifested in human form. And let me be specific in my theology here. Jesus did not, Jesus was not a mode of God or God did not step out of heaven to take on the role of Jesus. No, Jesus is a unique person of the Trinity. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son is Jesus. He's 100% man, but he's 100% God. One God, three persons. So I had to clear that up before Pastor Robbie accuses me of heresy. But it's, it's the circumstances of his manifestation that make this story so unique and memorable. I mean, as if it's not surprising enough that God chose to take the form of a man to come to earth to redeem humanity, the circumstances and the means by which he did so are what make this story so memorable. See, those of you that are familiar with the Christmas story know exactly what I'm talking about. But if it's your first time in church this morning... You're probably already a little bit weirded out, thinking about, okay, here's this kid up here talking about God becoming a human. But just stick with me for a moment. This is just a recap. I'm, I'm sure you guys have been through this story the past two weeks in a row. But as we've already seen, this story is a little bit unorthodox at first glance. See, we've got the ending of the Old Testament, the prophets and the kings and the priests. And the Old Testament is following this story where there's this promised Messiah who, who keeps getting mentioned that there's going to be a Messiah, there's going to be a Messiah, he's coming one day, and we're essentially following the people of Israel who are God's chosen people, who are elected to carry out, carry out the bloodline of this Messiah, this promised Messiah, and then we get to the, old, the end of the Old Testament and there's a period of silence for 400 years. Then we get to the New Testament and the promised Messiah has finally come, but not in the way that most people were expecting him to come. See, we get to the New Testament, and he arrives, he being Jesus, he comes humbly and quietly in the form of a baby, the most vulnerable among society. And then to add to that, he's born of a virgin, which actually, if you look at the original text, that word virgin more accurately translates to young virgin, so Mary was most likely just a teenager. So Jesus, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, is born of a young virgin, Mary, who's just a, just a little girl who gives birth to the Savior of the world. And he doesn't arrive in Jerusalem. He doesn't arrive in Rome or some major city. 
he comes to earth in a small hick town called Bethlehem. Now understand that Bethlehem was a, it was a small town, smaller than Monk's Corner. It didn't, probably didn't get many visitors except maybe for events here and there. Probably only had like one gas station. It was a small town. And then the inn in Bethlehem, which was probably the only place of lodging within the whole town, according to Scripture, was booked that night. So there was no rooms available. So Mary and Joseph have to go to a barn outside, basically a stable where she gives birth to Jesus among a bunch of noisy animals. And that's where the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament is born, in a stable among animals in a small town in the form of a baby. I mean, just think about this story. This is a bizarre story, is it not? In fact, details like this, these bizarre, unorthodox details are what historians and textual critics would refer to as a criteria of embarrassment. That when you're reading a historical text like this, a, a historical document, if there's details like this that are unorthodox and potentially embarrassing and strange, that that is actually a testimony to the trustworthiness of that particular document. Why? Because when textual critics and historians are looking for reliability within a document, they look for these kind of details because if the authors were trying to fabricate that narrative and lie about it, they would not include these kinds of details because they would never include details that made the subjects of the document look bad. If you're gonna lie about something, you're gonna lie to make yourself look good, right? But there's details like these, embarrassing details they call them, that are permeated throughout all of the gospel narratives, not just here at the birth of the Messiah. So the gospel accounts are deemed remarkably reliable because of these kinds of details, among a myriad of other reasons. But the fact that these details are in here are just a testimony to how reliable and accurate the documents are. So that, all that is to say, you can trust that what's written in your New Testament is the Word of God. They're not making this up. These events really happened. But I digress. No extra charge for that. Everything in this story is not what you would expect, and it's not what the readers of the time were expecting either. In fact, the entire life of Jesus is not characteristic of what they would have expected. Here's this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who, as I mentioned, was born in a manger, among a bunch of animals in a little town called Bethlehem who never lived more than 30 years, who never had a formal education, who never led a revolt against Rome, who never, who never held a political office, and yet some 2,000 years after his life is the, most historic, is the most influential historical figure of all time. Not one of the most. He is the most influential human being to ever have walked the earth. More books have been written about him. More songs have been written about him. More art has been depicted in his favor. More movements have been started about Jesus. Jesus is the most important human being to ever have lived. So, needless to say, we've got a lot to cover. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And what we're going to see here, I mentioned a moment ago, is these are some minor characters in the narrative, but actually play an important role, not for their sake, but to ultimately point the glory back to God. See, there are, there are no heroes in the Bible, by the way. There's just side characters, and then there's Jesus. And these are some side characters who are ultimately going to point the glory back to Jesus. So, starting in verse 8, Luke chapter 2, it says this. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It says, Suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into Bethlehem, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherds at what the shepherds told them. But it says, Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen as it had been told to them. So again, the context here is that Jesus, the promised Messiah of Old Testament, has just been born in Bethlehem. And then the narrative shifts to focus on these shepherds who are out in a field in the same region keeping watch over their flock of sheep. See, the interesting thing about the shepherds is that they're given a whole 12 verses in the birth account of Jesus. This portion of the gospel, as is the case with the rest of the gospel narratives, is solely focused on Jesus, but then we've got 12 whole verses dedicated to these shepherds out in a field. So remember that the, big, the greater context of the biblical narrative is everything points back to Jesus. So this morning, I actually want to show you three characteristics of how the angels related to the shepherds that ultimately points us back to how God relates to us and how Jesus related to his people when he was on earth. The first thing that we notice about the angels appearing to the shepherds is that they showed hospitality to the shepherds. They showed hospitality, and they did this by calming the fears of the shepherds. See, one thing we can know about angels based on Scripture is that they're terrifying. Not in like a horror movie sense where they're visually scary, but anytime that angels appear in Scripture, the people are filled with great fear. I mean, wouldn't you be? Because here's this blindingly bright, unexplainable, angelic, heavenly being who just manifested out of nowhere and then proceeds to say, oh yeah, by the way, don't be scared. Like, oh yeah, I never thought about it like that before. But then look again at the passage. It says, fear not, but why should they fear not? He tells them, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why should they fear not? The angel jumps right into preaching the gospel. He calms the fears of the trembling shepherds by showing them hospitality and then proclaims the gospel narrative. In other words, this message that I'm about to share with you is far more overwhelming than any fear that you're feeling right now. So, they show hospitality. They calm their fears. The second thing that the angels do is they use specific, familiar language and imagery when they're relating with the shepherds. Swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. These are images that the shepherds would have been very familiar with. And the reason they do this is because those markers would have hit home with the shepherds. They knew exactly what they were supposed to look for. 
The angels didn't give them just a general idea of where they should go or here's kind of what you're going to be looking for. No, they said you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. Very specific imagery. So the angels, they come where they are. They meet the shepherds where they are, out in the field, in their place of work, and then use specific language and imagery to relate to them. Because oftentimes the best way to relate to people is to meet them where they are. This is known as contextualization. I mean, just look at Jesus. Jesus did this all the time. Jesus contextualized. Jesus met people where they were. He ate with the sinners. He, he sat with tax collectors, the outcasts of society. He didn't shun them. He conversed with them. He welcomed them. He laughed with them. And then you look at how he, how he spoke and interacted with them. Jesus often taught using what? Parables. What's a parable? Well, a parable is a moral story with fictional characters and imagery that the audience of the time would have been familiar with because they use cultural language. And so Jesus used these parables because his audience would have, it would have hit home with them when they heard these certain stories. They're kind of like fables. So what parables allowed Jesus to do was to converse more adroitly and speak the truth of the gospel, but then still relate to them in, a, in an amicable fashion. So Jesus contextualized. Jesus met people where they were, and we're expected to do the same. So this is what the angels did as well. The angels calmed the fears of the shepherds. They used specific and familiar language to get their attention. And then lastly, the angels invited the shepherds themselves to come see baby Jesus in the manger. See, in addition to being shepherds, they would have also been kind of lowly, dirty, somewhat outcasts of their society. Not necessarily looked down upon, but they were kind of, you know, as I mentioned, outcasts. And so for the angels to come to them, angels, mind you, to come to the shepherds in their place of work and then welcome them and invite them to come see the birth of the Messiah was a huge deal for the shepherds, to say the least. So why did God choose the shepherds? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first being that God chooses messengers within their own context to spread the gospel message. God chooses messengers who are within their own context to spread his message. God chose the outcasts to be witnesses of the birth of the Messiah. That was their context. That was the place and time for which they were destined. That was their purpose. See, the Apostle Paul talks about how essentially it's not an accident that we live where we do and when we do. That we're here for a reason that God has, has ordained the foundations of the world to where we exist when we do for such a time as this. It's not an accident that you're alive where you are. It's not an accident that you're alive when you are where you are. God has a purpose. So if you're wondering this morning, what on earth is my purpose here? Your purpose is to be a messenger to proclaim the gospel in your context. Some of us think that, well, I have to go overseas if I want to preach the gospel. This is your mission field. God has placed you in such a time as this to be a messenger of the gospel. That's part of his will. See, this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of souls. God calls us to go. God needs his messengers to go and to proclaim his message. If we don't do it, who else is going to? We can just wait around for somebody else to, but then there's no telling who else is going to take up that call. There's a reason that God has called you to be a messenger for his glory. So the angels are meeting the shepherds right where they are in order to point them exactly where they need to go. They didn't meet them halfway. 
They came to them where they were in their place of work. They were very specific. See, when God relates to his people in order that his will might be accomplished, he always meets his children right where they are. God came to earth in the form of a newborn baby in a stable and then decides to reveal himself to some shepherds out in a field. Why? Well, as we already saw, God chose messengers within their context. But also, the second thing is that shepherds would have been extremely familiar with animals. Animal care, that's what they did for a living. They watched sheep. But in addition to this, you might not know that shepherds were also considered kind of the social media of their day. What does that mean? Well, the testimony of the shepherds would have been considered very reliable. In other words, people had no reason to distrust what the shepherds would say. Whenever shepherds would speak something, it was considered trustworthy. And so God chooses these messengers who had a huge responsibility. Animal care is a huge responsibility. I mean, when we, when we read in our English Bibles, it often says they're keeping watch over their flock by night. But if you actually look at the original language, it more accurately translates to guarding their sheep by night. Guard as in to prevent from perishing or to, to protect. So shepherding was a huge deal. I mean, remember, just if you read in 1 Samuel, you'll see that David, who was also a shepherd, that there were times where he literally killed lions and bears. It says that he grabbed a lion by the hair and struck it and pulled a lamb out of its mouth that it was trying to eat. I mean, talk about masculinity. Shepherding was a big responsibility. And so needless to say, the the account of the shepherds or their testimony would have been considered very reliable and trustworthy because that's part of what shepherding entailed. But now they've been entrusted with something even more big, even a bigger responsibility, and that is guarding not just their flock of sheep, but guarding the truth of the gospel. So remember, we're looking at this narrative from a third person's point of view. We know how the story ends, at least those of us that have read it, those of us that have been in church for any number of years, we know the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus went on to preach and proclaim. We know that he healed the sick and opened blind eyes and made the lame walk and sat with sinners and tax collectors and forgave people of their sins and welcomed people and drew the little children to himself. We know the, the, the wonders that Jesus performed, but the shepherds, all they know is that Supposedly, the Messiah has been born, and he's in a manger, and we know a thing or two about animals, and we've been invited to come see him for ourselves. That's all they knew. They didn't know that he would later go on to save the world. All they knew is that this angel has told us that the Messiah has been born, and we're going to believe them, and we're going to trust that people are going to believe us when we proclaim the gospel as well. We've been in the third week of Advent this past week. And it's the week that focuses on joy. And I just can't help but imagine the sheer joy that the shepherds must have been feeling. To be able to witness the birth of the Messiah. And what does it say that they do after they went and saw the Messiah? They went proudly and boldly proclaiming what? Proclaiming the gospel and glorifying God. They didn't draw the glory back to themselves and say, guess what we got to do? They went and glorified God. See, our testimonies, as I mentioned a moment ago, should always point us back to the glory of God. should never be to glorify ourselves. The glory always gets pointed back to God. Jesus is still the center of this story. 
See, the God of the universe meets them right where they are and says, this is the kind of messenger that I want to proclaim the gospel, the shepherds, the outcasts. Everything about this story is humbling. This is not the way that the people were expecting the story to go. Remember that the people, they were expecting a military king. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the government. They wanted Jesus to set up an earthly throne. But Jesus arrives humbly in the form of a baby in a manger and then would ultimately die a brutal death on a cross just so his children who despised and rejected him could have a chance at redemption through salvation to be saved from the punishment that we deserve. See, Scripture says that every single one of us deserves separation from God. Why? Because every single one of us is not without sin. Scripture says that there's none who is righteous, not even one, that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. There's a gap between us and God, and we're in debt to Him because He is perfect and we're not. And so by being sinful human beings that we are, we can't exist in His presence without a mediator. There had to be somebody who came in, in the form of a man to take on the sin and the punishment that we deserve, and that person was Jesus. See, Jesus reached out and offered us salvation through the humble, sacrificial death on a cross. That's the bad news. The bad news is that we're sinners. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve eternity separated from him. The good news is that Jesus had not remained dead, but after three days he was raised from the dead and thus sealing our election. If we choose to put our salvation, or if we choose to put our trust in Jesus Christ, it says that he will redeem us of our sins all we have to do is turn from that sin. See, God meets us where we are, but he doesn't let us stay there. He calls us to turn from our old life. As Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He doesn't leave us there in our sin. He calls us to turn from it and to repent and put on new life in Jesus Christ. We're given a brand new identity, and we can never be plucked from his hand, as, as Scripture says, that no matter what we've done, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, Jesus offers salvation to anyone and everyone who will believe. It's not a matter of works so that no one may boast, because if we could save ourselves, we certainly would, and we'd boast about it too. But we can't save ourselves, which is why we need Jesus and why we need the gospel. Scripture says that God wills that all people should be saved. God wants all people to be saved. He invites all people to be saved, especially those who have rejected him which is every single one of us, by the way. See, if this, if this story is true, this changes everything. If it's your first time in church this morning and you've never heard the gospel message before, just please understand that this is the most important decision you could ever possibly make. If this book is really true, and I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is, then every single one of us has a decision to make. We can continue living in sin. We can continue living in willful rebellion against God. But we will have to suffer the consequences of that one day, which is an eternity separated from God. But God loved us so much that he offered us a chance to turn from that sin and not have to live in a world of brokenness anymore, that one day we will be restored, one day all things will be glorified, and there will be no more hurt, no more disease, no more death, that things will be back to the way they were supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, where there was no evil, there was no sadness, there was no sickness of any kind. So if this is your first time in church this morning, if you've never heard this message, please just understand this one thing. You need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. 
and he will redeem you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus calls us to a life of fulfillment and prosperity, spiritual prosperity and life. See, just as baby Jesus was approachable back then, all they had to do was just follow the directions of the angels and go see the baby in the manger. God remains approachable to us now. The God of the universe, the, the holiest of holy God, remains approachable to us. All we have to do is call upon his name. No other worldview, no other religion comes even close to that. Every other religion is a religion of works. You have to do this, this, and this to earn God's favor, earn your place in heaven. The Bible says, no, it's, it's not what you do that gets you salvation. It's what God has done for you. So all we have to do this morning is call upon his name. Scripture says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we, we're humbled because we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your mercy and your grace. We despised and rejected you. And we were the reason why your son died on the cross because we put him there. But it was all part of your will, God. Scripture also says that Jesus went to the cross willfully because he wanted a relationship with us. And so, God, we're just so humbled and so, so in love with you this morning. And I just pray that God, if there's anyone here that has never heard this message, Lord, that you would just convict them, that you would just open their heart toward you, Lord, and remind us, God, that this season is all about you, that, God, you get the glory in every aspect of our lives. You've called us to be messengers. You met us where we are in our hurt and in our brokenness and our rebellion just so we could have a redeemed relationship with you. So, Lord, I just I just pray this morning that we would keep our eyes focused on that, Lord, and focused on you and recognize that there's nothing that we can do to make you love us any more or less, that your love was displayed for us in an outpouring of your, your blood on the cross. And God, we just give you all the praise and the glory for that this morning. And in your son's most precious name, amen.